as I mentioned earlier, we'll be in Psalm 13 together this morning. And you may have noticed that uh, we've covered a few psalms this summer. Um, not all psalms are songs of praise and, and rejoicing and, and this vibrant, happy emotions, right? In fact, more psalms are psalms of lament and sorrow than songs of praise. And I find that very interesting. Uh, So often we see as our goal when we gather together as a church that this is a time we need to be happy and and uplifting. and, And certainly we do need to be full of joy at all times. But sometimes that joy, which is a... an express contentedness despite our circumstances. Sometimes that joy is not in giddiness. Sometimes it does not express itself in this, this vibrant and uplifting and excited attitude. Because sometimes life is hard. Sometimes God brings things into our lives that are overwhelming. And David was no stranger to that. There have been several... Men, godly men in history, no stranger to that. If you've gone through depression, if you've gone through deep discouragement, if you've gone through despair or anguish or hopelessness, you are not alone. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther suffered many bouts of depression. He called them the dark nights of the soul. He had problems with his health, constant fear for his life. He struggled in the church, he struggled with conflicts, attacks from Satan, and these often brought on to him those dark nights of the soul. In fact, during one such episode, he wrote to a friend, completely abandoned by Christ, I labor under the vacillation and storms of desperation. Now that doesn't sound like the great reformer who stood at the Diet of Worms and said, here I stand, I can do no other. Even Martin Luther suffered difficulty. Earlier this summer, Kempis, when he was preaching from Psalm 42 and 43, he mentioned Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. He struggled with discouragement. He struggled with depression. In fact, he called them fainting fits. And he often struggled. I don't know if you know this, but when he was early in his ministry, when he was in his early 20s, he had preached at a particular event. There were well over 10,000 people at this event. And during this event, someone yelled, fire. And seven people died from being trampled to death. Spurgeon carried that with him the rest of his life. He felt some responsibility for that. And he struggled with it. His wife, Susanna, developed a debilitating condition about ten years into their marriage, and she became an invalid. Spurgeon himself endured constant physical pain from gout, rheumatism, and inflammation of the kidneys. In fact, Spurgeon once said, Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. I might as well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. That's Spurgeon talking there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, considered by many to be the most influential preacher of the 20th century. In fact, many... Um, many give him the uh, distinction of bringing back expository preaching to the church. He too struggled. He too had depression at times. He, uh, based on his experiences, he preached 21 sermons about depression. And then he collected them together in a book called Spiritual Depression. So, you know, if you think about this, Luther, Spurgeon... Martin Lloyd-Jones, if these men could struggle with discouragement, 
then why could we not? I've known many people, many people who, including pastors who have wrestled with depression. In fact, I can still remember in the first year of uh, when I was in full-time ministry, the first year, that was one of the most discouraging years of my life. There were things I had not anticipated. Wayne Mack describes depression as discouragement to the point of hopelessness, where it isn't just difficult to keep going, but it feels like it is impossible to keep going. And again, I know this is a topic that Pastor Kempis has touched on a few times in going through this series, summer series in the Psalms, but I think it's important that we take one more look at it. Not because Kempis didn't cover it adequately or correctly, but there's just so much to this problem that one or two messages can't capture everything that we need to understand in addressing this issue, a, a really a, an epidemic in our culture. I want to speak on it today because depression is a real issue. It's a real issue even in the church. We are so often confronted with it to one degree or another. It's part of the human condition. Again, as I mentioned, look how often it comes up in the Psalms. Perhaps some of you now are going through such a time. Maybe some of you are encountering great difficulty in your particular situation. And so you're struggling. And maybe that struggle has been going on for a while. And maybe other folks don't really know about it. Or maybe you've gone through it in the past. And you fear those feelings may come back. And you don't know how you're going to cope with that. Or maybe you know somebody who is in despair. You know someone who is struggling with this. And you're not sure how to help them. And so we need to talk about this. Not just so that we can know how to help others. And and not just so that we can keep ourselves from experiencing depression and discouragement. These are certainly important reasons, but there's a much greater reason that every Christian needs to know how to battle with despair, with discouragement, with hopelessness. Let me quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this, Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. As we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. He goes on to say, In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions and in spite of adversity. What he says is important because he reminds us here that when it comes to dealing with depression or great discouragement, there is more at stake than our own comfort or safety or enjoyment in life. There is more at stake than just how we feel. The honor and the effectiveness, the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and the effectiveness of His gospel are also on display. And and here's the issue, brothers and sisters. This is the concern. Our very testimony. Because a joyless Christian presents a powerless gospel. A joyless Christian presents a powerless gospel. Yes, Jesus said, Come to me all you weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You know, it's that Eeyore gospel presentation. 
A joyless Christian presents a powerless gospel. So what are we to do? How do we find deliverance from depression? How do we express joy in the midst of circumstances? And again, by joy, I don't mean this silly, happy giddiness. But by that contentedness, that rest, that peace in no matter what circumstance, that, that confidence in knowing Christ depart, despite what's happening in your life. So I want us to look at Psalm 13 where David will give us two responses to deliver us from depression. Two responses to take us from sighing to singing. And again, we remember David, he was no stranger to discouragement and despair. He was often on the run for his life. Um, His family was kidnapped at one point in his life in Ziklag by a, a band of marauders. David struggled with the guilt and the consequences of adultery and murder. David's daughter was raped by her half-brother. That half-brother was then murdered by his half-brother, who then tried to usurp David and take the throne, and then tried to kill his own father. David experienced some pretty serious challenges and difficulties in his life. He knew great pain and suffering. And in Psalm 13, we come to one such situation in his life where he has again been brought low. Let me read it one more time to you, and then let's look at it carefully together. Psalm 13, David writes, For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Again, we see here a lament from David. And we're given here the circumstances, the general circumstances which occasioned this lament. We see again that David is on the run for his life. And you know, if you think about it, here was a guy, remember what was promised to him by God? That he would have the throne, right? So put yourself in his shoes. He's on the run from the guy that's currently on the throne. And because of David's integrity, he's not going to assassinate that guy. He's going to let God take care of it. And yet, here he is. This guy, King Saul, wants David dead. And he's chasing him around Israel to try to kill him. And so David writes this poem, not in the nice, you know, nice peaceful meadow or field. He's writing it in a cave, most likely. He's writing it in hiding. Here's a guy who, I should be on the throne, and yet, I might be dead tomorrow. And so he's discouraged. His life, and the events of his life have taken their toll on David to the point, listen as he cries out. Listen to what he says here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will the only voice that I hear be my own? How long will I have to suffer at the hands of my enemy? And almost implied, it's not written here, is how long, God, are you going to wait to keep your promise? Or did you forget about that too? 
And notice the repetition here in Hebrew. Adamah. How long? How long? Just in the way it's those two words together, you can see the laments, right? You can see that this is burden. He's in, he's in misery. This wasn't some prayer that was offered in a nice, comfortable place. And notice David's questions. They aren't ones seeking information, are they? These are cries from a despairing man. God, where are you? Life doesn't make sense right now. Why aren't you listening? Where have you gone? Why have you hidden yourself from me? I am abandoned. Why have you abandoned me? And then he says, I feel like dying. That's a lament we see from many people in Scripture. Job cried out, my spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Moses, he came to a point where he said, I alone am not able to carry all this people. It is too burdensome for me. So God, if you're going to deal this way with me, kill me at once. If I found favor in your sight. There's Elijah. You know, we love that story when he fought the great prophets of Baal, right? You remember that account with the altar and, and the fire coming from heaven and licking up the water and burning the, the, the uh, sacrifice and then the 450 prophets of Baal running for their lives and he kills them. Great victory, right? God is on the throne. Hallelujah. But then it hits Elijah. Queen Jezebel is still reigning as queen. And that means Baal is still here in the land. So he goes off into the wilderness and he tells God, God, let me quote from him exactly. It is enough, O Lord, take my life. Paul said of the affliction he faced, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. These aren't some chumps. These aren't some new baby Christians here. Job, Moses, Paul, Elijah. These are mature, godly men who knew God, who saw God at work in their lives. Amazing things. Moses saw amazing things. Elijah witnessed and experienced amazing things. Paul himself. And yet these men even got to a point in their lives where they said, Take me now. I'm done. Kill me. They were discouraged. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like God is ignoring you? Have you ever been at a place where you just, you know what, I take my life. I'm done. I think there are more in this room here than we would realize that have come to that place. And you pray for relief. You pray for deliverance. You pray for something and all you hear is silence. You see, the silence sometimes is so deafening, it drowns out every thought but this one. God just isn't listening. He doesn't care. And if this hasn't happened to you yet, it will. It will. You will come to a place where you will despair of life at times. And you see, the question isn't whether you will face these trials or not, whether you will feel abandoned or not. Again, those times will come. The question is this, what will you do when you face them? How will you respond? How will you deal with the discouragement? Will you give in? Will you slide down into depression or despondency or despair or will you climb out? Well, David's own experience in Psalm 13 shows us two ways to climb out. 
two responses that will take us from sighing to singing. And the first one is this, in verses 1 through 4. The first response is, pray to God. Pray to God. Oh, Pastor Tim, that's that's so simple. It's got to be something deep, something meaningful. Pray to God. Well, you know what? Notice in these verses, who does David turn to in this deep struggle? He doesn't speak with fellow soldiers. He's not talking to his family first or to a priest. He's bearing his concerns to God himself. And David teaches that this is the first response to freedom from depression. It's to go to God with it. To pray to Him. Don't brood over the situation. Don't fret about it. Don't hold it in. Go to the Lord and go to Him first. I know it's basic, but how often do we not do that? Prayer should be our our knee-jerk response to everything. Where's our brother, Mark Mulcahy? What is it you like to say, brother? Go ahead. You can be part of the sermon this morning. Prayers are, should be our... Prayer should be our first response and not our last resort. I like that. You must have stole that from somewhere else, but it's a good quote. (laughs) Should be our first response, not our last resort, especially in those times of discouragement, especially in those times when we're not sure he's listening. Because David here, he's at a low point. He's basically saying, God, you've abandoned me, but he's still talking to him. I think there's a wise principle there. This is what we saw in the life of Daniel. If you remember, Daniel and the wise men, that that the king threatened to kill them all. If you look at Daniel chapter 2, I believe it is, at the beginning or the end of chapter 1, Daniel is going to the Lord in prayer. Hezekiah. When he faced 185,000 Assyrian soldiers camped outside Jerusalem. And they were sending messages to him. that It's over. Don't trust in your God. We're going to wipe you out. Just give up. And he takes those messages. He runs to the temple. He puts them down. He says, God, you have to do something. Because we can't. Hezekiah didn't go to his therapist. Hezekiah didn't run to his advisors or his generals. Hezekiah didn't seek out a priest. He went to God himself. And because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can do that too. And that's what David does here in Psalm 13, because he knew only God could bring comfort. He knew only God could bring deliverance. He knew only God could do something about it. And he knew that only God could help. And so he went to God. And don't miss this, that even though God seemed far away, David went anyway. Even though David felt like God was ignoring him, David cried out to God anyway. And beloved, this is the first step to freedom from despair. This is the first step to release us from discouragement. This is the first place to go. In times of distress, run to God and don't let your feelings dictate what you do. Even if your prayers seem like they're bouncing off the ceiling, pound the ceiling harder. And in your pounding, note these two important characteristics in David's prayer and the way he prayed. Notice that he prays honestly and notice that he prays fervently. Look at verses 1 and 2. Notice first he prays honestly. And we saw this back in Psalm 42. We see it again here. David asks some pretty direct questions to God, doesn't he? 
fact, we might say David makes some pretty startling accusations. How long will you forget me, O God? How long will you ignore me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you abandon me? Don't you care? When he says here, how long will you forget me, O God? He's not talking about God's memory. The word for neglect here, has, or for forget here, has the idea of neglect. It has the idea of ceasing to care. God is saying, or David is saying, God, don't you care anymore? Don't I matter to you? And notice verse 2, David asks the Lord, how long will he be left to take counsel in his soul? That's the idea of, he's just, all the, the only voice he hears is his own. He's just talking to himself. And the picture here is the soul as a storeroom. It's being filled up with, with failed plans. And David's keeping himself at night. He's frustrated. He's irritated. He's discouraged. He's trying to figure a way out of this mess. And he's frustrated that he can't. At the end of verse 2, David pleads, how long will his enemy have the upper hand? You know, the more he thinks about his situation, the more depressed he gets. No relief. The walls are closing in. God is nowhere to be found. To be found. In fact, David here expresses his nearness that he feels near to death. His prayer is brutally honest. He's, it's brazen almost, right? All these things that he's saying about God, I think if we were standing there listening to him, we'd be doing this. You know, waiting for the lightning bolt to come down. I mean, David, mm, you know, these are pretty serious accusations. But you see, it's not so much that David's accusing God. He's just telling God how he feels. He didn't flower up his speech or put on this pious prayer, pretend these things weren't happening. Before God, he was transparent and honest. He spoke openly and we often see this in Scripture. The prophet Habakkuk said this in Habakkuk 1-2, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Asaph said in Psalm 79, We become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry with us forever? Or in Psalm 88, the psalmist says, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. These are broken souls. Bearing out their hearts before the Lord. I think sometimes we're afraid to do that. Sometimes we're afraid to just say, God, this is how I feel. Yeah, God knows how we feel. But there is something about having that communication with him. And I think we learn from David here to pray honestly. C.S. Lewis he lost his wife to cancer. And he called out to God for comfort, but he too heard no reply. He felt no reply. And so he said this, What can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Now, is that true? Is that true? No. But you see... These are real prayers from real people going through real problems that are really struggling and they're looking for real answers. And when you talk to someone who's speaking this way, don't immediately condemn them. Now, when I say pray honestly, I'm not advocating irreverent prayer, all right? There is a difference. I'm not advocating that you have a license to vent your anger to God or to impugn Him. But let your prayers be a prayer from the heart. Honest questions that are given by a despairing child. 
I mean, think about Jesus on the cross. What did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how he felt. And in a real sense, in that moment, he was because he was bearing the sins of God's children on his shoulders. A burden we will never face. And so he cried out in honest prayer. If we go back to David's prayer in verses 1 and 2, again, notice those how long questions. How accurate were they? How theologically correct were David's questions? Does God hide himself from his children? Does he forget his people? Hebrews 13.5 comes to my mind where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, God does not abandon us. He does not forsake His children. I remember Romans 8.35. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing will separate God's children from the love of Christ. So what do we do with these questions, David? Do we rebuke Him? Do we blast Him? David, this theology is wrong and incorrect. I need to rebuke you. I need to confront you. You know, that's what Job's friends did to Job. He made an interesting comment in Job 6 regarding the advice he was getting. He said, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forget or forsake the fear of the Almighty. Do you intend to prove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? It's an interesting statement. Job's saying, you know what? I know I'm speaking like a fool here. I know my, my words belong to the wind but I am broken. I mean, think about what Job lost. And he was suffering and he's crying out and he didn't feel like anyone was listening. And here his friends were saying, Job, you're the problem. Repent from your sin. You know, if you come to someone who is distraught or in a state of despair, be careful. Remember, sometimes their words are being spoken from raw emotion from pain, and maybe a a degree of suffering you have not yourself experienced. And so what they say is probably not going to come out right away theologically sound. Again, we don't have a right to impugn God. We don't have a right to vent our anger against Him. But give people room. As Job said, there should be kindness from a friend. Especially when one is despairing. So listen to them. Pray with them. And as Paul says, what we need to do is weep with them. There will be time to fix their theology. Remember the words in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, to admonish the unruly, to help the weak, and to encourage the faint-hearted. If someone's faint-hearted, rebuke may be the very thing to send them further into despair. Just be careful. There will come a time when you will need to Admonish them if there are some things, but but be careful. Help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted. And then Paul said, be patient with all men. <laughs> Remember that. Going back to Psalm 13, we're reminded in verses 1 and 2 to pray honestly. Secondly, we see from David to pray fervently. Pray fervently. Here, David says in verse 3, consider, answer me. Look at me, God. Give attention to my situation. Revive me. Don't let me die. Don't let my enemy be victorious. He's giving, in in the Hebrew, these very short, uh, staccato-like appeals. There's an urgency. There's a zeal. There's a, a fervency. There's an emotion being expressed here. 
And it prompts the question I think we all need to ask ourselves is, with how much zeal do we pray? I'm reminded of Epaphras in Colossians 4.12 that it says of him that he labored earnestly in his prayers for the Colossians. That word labor is this idea of agonize. He agonized in prayer. And you know, when's the last time that you agonized in prayer? So often prayer can become like a checklist, can't it? Making sure we pray for these various needs. And sometimes we can forget that prayer also needs to be an earnest bearing of the soul. And sometimes, you know what? God will take us to the edge. He will bring trials and situations in our lives. He will bring difficulties, maybe even taking us to the edge of despair so that we will be driven to our knees and cry out to Him. We need to have the attitude at that moment, I'm not letting go until you respond, God. Like Jacob wrestling. Remember he said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Sometimes we need to have that in our prayer. In fact, Hezekiah was known as a man who clung to God more than any other before or after him, actually, the Scripture says. Is that you in prayer? Are you clinging? I'm not letting go of your ankles until you do something, until you say something. So often we just give up. God's not answering. I don't see anything changing. Oh, well, I'm going to just move on. Does that describe your prayer? And let's remember one thing too, brothers and sisters. It's not prayer in and of itself that really does anything. When I... uh, 9-11 9-11 hit, I remember, maybe you saw some of the people were being interviewed and spoken to, and I remember how, how often there was just this idea of people praying. And I remember watching one interview, and some lady was just saying, you know, we just need to pray. And I'm thinking the whole time, pray to who? Power, and listen to me carefully here. I want to state this carefully. You're listening, right? And you're not going to take me out of context, Right? Prayer does not change things. Prayer, in and of itself, does not change a thing. God, through prayer, changes things. Prayer to Vishnu won't change a thing. You can pray to Peter or Mary or any saint. Nothing is going to happen. You can pray to Muhammad or Allah or Reverend Moon or the God as you so know Him. Nothing will happen! God, the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, prayer to Him will change things. Jesus Himself said, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, it wasn't the Gentile that they weren't praying. They were praying a lot. But they weren't praying to our Father who is in heaven. So our prayer must be to Him, and our prayer must be honest, and our prayer must be fervent, even when we think God isn't paying attention. Job went through, again, one of the greatest distresses imaginable. And he still said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. No matter how you feel. Where else are you going to go? 
What else is going to give you relief? What else is going to give you ultimate comfort? What else is going to truly help you? Look at verse 3. David says, Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. That's a euphemism. Enlighten my eyes, revive me, refresh me, or I'm going to die. You know, I can vividly remember a time in my life where several significant trials came all at one point, and my heart was broken. I couldn't bear it any longer, and I was by myself lying in bed trying to go to sleep, and I just, I still remember, I just cried out to God, God, God. It was sort of one of these prayers. I don't even remember what I said. But it was just bearing my soul. I prayed honestly. I prayed fervently. And then I had to wait. And that's where we find David at the end of verse 4. He had no immediate response. There was no direct revelation from heaven. No removal of circumstances. No changes really in his feelings. But David, in faith, he had bared his soul before the Lord. He had prayed honestly. He had prayed fervently. He's crying out for help. And you know what? If after he had done this, he just wall- if he had just wallowed in despair, if he just sat there and said, you know what? Nothing's happening. I'm done. I'm going to quit. Then that would have been it. Verse 4 would not only have been the end of this poem, verse 4 would have been the end of David. But notice, there's a verse 5. Praise God for verse 5. David takes the next step. He, let, he quits letting his feelings do the talking. He stops trying to come up with his own plans to get him out of trouble. He talks to the Lord, and now he's going to let God talk to him. And in these last two verses, we see the second response to gain freedom from depression. The first, pray to God. The second is preach to yourself. Pray to God, preach to yourself. It's a simple point, but if you want to move from sighing to singing, then you must preach truth to yourself. Take a look again at verse 5. David says there, but, and that's emphatic in the Hebrew, but I myself. It's like there's an exclamation point there. It's underlined. It's in bold type. But I myself have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That first word, it's like David catches himself. He's expressing this lament. How long will you abandon me, God? I just want to die. Are you going to do anything about it? Are you listening? Do you care? And then, but, 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 hold on, David. It's like he he grabs hold of himself before sliding down into the pit of despair, he takes himself aside and says, David, hold on a minute. You've got to remember a few things here. David, don't get stuck on how you feel. Focus on what is true. Direct your attention on what is real. And so David, he preaches to himself those last two verses. And in doing so, he moves from helplessness to hopefulness. He moves from depression to delight, from gloom to glee, from sighing to singing. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? (laughs) That's the whole sermon right there. 
Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. The main art in the matter of spiritual living, he says, is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? And then finally he says, you must turn on yourself. (laughs) You must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And that's what David does here. He takes a hold of himself by the collar and says, wait a minute, son. And he begins to preach to himself. And he preaches to himself a short three-point sermon. All godly sermons are three points, I guess. So I got to think of a third one for mine. But his is this three-point sermon and then a song. And actually, he does that. The first statement David gives in verse 5 is key. Look at there where it's really the hinge upon which this psalm turns. He says there, I have trusted in your loving kindness. Trust here, brothers and sisters, is the key. Confidence in God, hope in Him, relying on Him. When those times of despair come, when you're overwhelmed by discouragement, when depression looms at your doorstep, you have a choice before you. Will you trust God or not? During one of Luther's dark nights of the soul, he spent three days in depression. And finally, on the third day, his wife comes downstairs and she's dressed in mourning clothes. So Luther said, who's dead? And his wife says, God is. (laughs) And so Luther then rebuked her. What do you mean, woman, that God is dead? God cannot die. And then she says this. Well, the way you've been acting, I'm sure that he has. (laughs) Martin Luther needed that woman. You know, there's a book about her. It's called Martin Luther Had a Wife. You know, some choose to deal with their despair by running to other things, seeking comfort in food or alcohol, looking for escape in entertainment or a hobby, trying to find pleasure in pornography or sex, try to isolate themselves from the world and just hope the pain will go away. Others seek relief through meds. I mean, the list goes on. I've mentioned several times, Satan's like a man there with a trench coat and he'll open it up and he has a lot to offer. Anything for escape, anything to keep you from the only real solution. Anything to keep you from reminding yourself that God can be trusted. Anything to keep you from putting your hope and confidence in him. Spurgeon said, Despondency is not a virtue. I believe it is a vice. I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it, but I am sure there is no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. Again, the choice is before us. Will we trust God or not? It's easy to have faith when the bills are paid. It's easy to trust God when the bank account is healthy. It's easy to express This hope in God when your stomach is full, when your body is healthy. When there's no conflict, when your family's doing well. But you know what? 
A real faith is forged on the anvil of trials. A long-lasting faith is achieved in the furnace of difficulty. A pure trust in God is refined in fire. That's just the way it is. It's hard. It's the worst. But God in His infinite wisdom and compassion and care and understanding knows that that is how true faith is born and true faith is cultivated. In his book on depression, Ed Welch said this, In depression, the new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. It's living by faith. In other words, when there is a debate between what your feelings say and what Scripture says, Scripture wins. Again, we're not talking about faith in and of itself. Just like prayer, just having faith isn't the answer. It's the object of your faith. That's what's key. What are you trusting in? David said, I trust in God. And notice specifically, he says, I trust in your loving kindness. That's the word chesed. That word that's hard to translate because it's so rich and broad in its scope. This idea of trusting in God's loving kindness, His loyalty, His faithfulness, His mercy, His compassion. That's all embedded within the idea, His steadfast love. And you know, as David's saying this, I wonder what memories were coming to his mind about acts in his past, about God's work in his life in the past. I wonder if... Goliath, the image of that big beast standing before him, came to his mind. I wonder if those lions and bears that he fought while caring for the sheep came to his mind. He brought to mind the goodness and mercy of God in his life. And that kindled that trust. You know, Jeremiah, when he was in the midst of great discouragement, he said this in Lamentations 3.21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The loving kindness, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Listen, Jeremiah is preaching to himself. The Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. I love that. Notice here, you can rekindle that faith, you can kindle that trust by recalling in your mind. Notice he begins it. This I recall to my mind, and that's what gives me hope. He recalled to his mind what God had done, to God's faithfulness in his life. But to get on the path to freedom from depression, and we have to preach to ourselves, trust in God, to trust in God. God is trustworthy. And when we don't trust him, what do we say to the world? That he's not. That's exactly what Eve did. We have to keep reminding ourselves to trust Him no matter how we feel. And that's not easy. I understand that. That is very difficult. It's very hard. We are so prone to let what we see and what we experience cloud out what is true. But again, let me just remind you, God can be trusted. 
He can be trusted. He is in control. He knows what he's doing. And his love is infinite. So preach that to yourself. Preach to yourself, trust in him. And secondly, notice David's second point in his preaching outline is preach to yourself joy in your salvation. Take a look again at verse 5. David says there, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now it's interesting, David, just a few verses earlier, he said he had sorrow in his heart all the day, right? And now here, he preaches to himself to have a different disposition, to rejoice. To rejoice. And that joy, notice, he's not doing this emotional manipulation. He's not looking at himself in the mirror and saying, you will be happy. You will have joy. You will be content. It's not some Jedi mind trick that's going on here. No, notice there's a joy that's based on something. What is it? I will rejoice in your salvation. Now, I don't think David here was just talking about deliverance from his circumstance. I think David here is looking, because for one, the enemy hadn't been removed from his situation. And yet he speaks here, I will rejoice in your salvation. I believe David here is looking beyond his present circumstance to the ultimate deliverance from the pains of life. What a great song we sang a moment ago. Finally home. I think that's the idea here. From a post-cross perspective, we might describe this as preaching the gospel to yourself. And again, we need to remember, consider the full impact of the gospel. Consider all that comes with it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Any of you here, are you worthy to stand before God? Are any of us worthy of heaven? There should be a resounding no on this one. You guys awake on me. Come on, wake up. No, right? None of us deserve to be before a holy and good God. But in the gospel, because of what Christ has done and faith in Him, we're granted forgiveness. We're granted redemption. We're purchased from slavery to sin and Satan and brought into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the gospel, we have the very righteousness of Christ given to us. Do you realize you couldn't enter heaven just being forgiven, right? Forgiveness is the first step. The second is you need the righteousness of Christ to stand before God. And we don't have any righteousness of our own to bring to the table, do we? So in the gospel, we have Christ's righteousness applied to us. In the gospel, we have the hope of eternal life. In the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit given to us to motivate us, to strengthen us, to enlighten us, to encourage us, to bring us together in unity. In the gospel, we have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In the gospel, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Turn to 1 Peter 1 for a minute with me, would you? 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter expresses this idea amazingly well. 1 Peter 1.3, as Peter reflects on what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has brought. He says there in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Sounds like Psalm 13. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the blooming flower coming out of the seed which David plants in Psalm 13.5. Peter says, even in the midst of trials, we can rejoice. Why? Because we're delusional? (laughs) We can rejoice because, he says, God's preserving an eternal inheritance for his children. We can rejoice because final rest is coming. We can rejoice because we will be finally home. And that's what Job preached to himself. This is incredible. Job 19.25, he says this. Again, this is Job. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh, I will see God. In the gospel, we have a future hope and a purpose now. There's so much more to be found, again, in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And it may not feel like that in the midst of a situation that you are in. It may not feel like that when you're despairing and discouraged. It may not feel like that when you just want to be done with life. And that's why we have to remind ourselves of it. That's why we have to preach salvation to ourselves. Preach what God has given And don't listen to Siri. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) Preach it, brother. That's right. But the gospel contains spiritual riches beyond what we can even imagine. And that's why we need to preach the full gospel to ourselves. Remind us of the truths contained within it. Meditate deeply, not only on the future hope, but also the present blessing we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That will produce joy, a a true joy, a settled joy in our hearts. Now, it goes without saying that preaching the gospel to yourself only helps if you believe it. Right? Right? Preaching yourself, Jesus died on a cross for our sins, only helps if you believe that. If you have not yet turned from your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not yet recognized that you are a sinner, that we all are sinners, deserving God's just and eternal punishment in hell, And recognizing that the only hope that we have to get out of that is not something that we can do in ourselves. It's not something that we can generate on our own. It's not some work and not some activity, not some action. The only way out is to put our faith in Jesus Christ. The only way out is to put our trust in the fact that He came, the Son of God came, became a man, lived a full and perfect life, And then was placed on a cross unjustly so that he might make a way 
for those who put their faith in Him to be forgiven. You may be at a point in your life right now where you aren't sure if you have a relationship with Him. That might be part of the problem with your discouragement. Maybe that you don't have that true hope. And listen, if that's you, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. Come to me all here weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, let me take that burden from you. And he's the only one who can. So make a commitment to follow Christ. Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The ultimate answer to depression, the ultimate answer to everything is Jesus, right? Simple Sunday school answer, but it's true. What's that great hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his marvelous face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace. It's like having holding up a candle and then turning on a, a giant spotlight. The light from the candle goes away. All you see is that grand spotlight shining. And so from David's three-point self-sermon here, the first two points are to preach faith in God and preach joy and salvation. And then the, the last one, just quickly here, is preach praise to God. Look at the end of verse 6. David ends his poem with these words, I will sing to the Lord for he has dealt bountifully with me. And this tells us that singing praise to God not only brings joy, or not only brings him joy, but it is also our path to joy. Praise not only lifts the soul in good times, but also in the bad. In fact, Martin Luther, he wrote this hymn. You might have heard of it. A mighty fortress is our God. Do you know when he wrote that hymn? He was in one of his dark nights of the soul. Horatio Spafford wrote the incredible hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, following the drowning of his three daughters. And here in Psalm 13, this psalm is itself a song, right? Notice the first line for the choir director. David is writing a song in response to his despair. Singing is a remedy for discouragement. Now, we're not just talking about singing for the sake of singing, right? Twinkle, twinkle, little... You know, I'm feeling better already. (laughs) It's not singing for the sake of singing. Just like prayer in and of itself is not the answer. It's prayer to God. Just like faith in and of itself is not the answer. It's faith in God. In the same way, singing is not in itself the answer. It is singing to God and about God. It is praise directed to God based on who he is and based on what he has done. Notice in verse 6, David says, Because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's been good to me. Thomas Watson said this, A good Christian is not a grave to bury God's mercies, but a temple to sing his praises. I like that. So let me encourage you. When you're in those times of challenge, difficulty, despair, discouragement, even depression... Bring to mind an encouraging hymn. Have a hymnal in your car or close by that you can just grab and start singing. 
Play a song which focuses attention on God and who He is. Load up your iPhone, your Spotify account, or or your 8-track cassette deck, whatever you've got, whatever gadgetry you have. Load it up with God-exalting songs. Sometimes it may be hard to sing one yourself. Well, listen to somebody else singing it. And consistently gather together with God's people. When we sing, because again, you may not feel like it, but just to hear, right? What does it say in Colossians? Singing to one another. Now, just in closing, let me remind you from David's example. Pray to God and preach to self. Don't listen to your heart. Talk to it. Remind yourself what is true about God. Sing songs that direct your attention to Christ. And in this message, I, I hope that I'm not giving the impression that this, this psalm is just like a pill. Feeling down? Take Psalm 13 and all your worries will go away. <laughs> That's not the point here. Overcoming depression is more of an, a process than an event. Especially if it's a deep, long-standing Depression. It may take some time to get from sighing to singing. You'll need to practice these truths. That's what faith is. It's doing what is right. It is doing what God tells us to do, even when it's hard or when we don't feel like it. And we keep doing it. Practice these truths over and over. Pray to God. Preach to self. There may be relapses, but don't give up. Remember these words. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. Thank you for words of hope and encouragement. Thank you for David that you prompted him to write this for us so that we would have it, so that we would see just how you worked in David's life to bring him from sighing to singing. But I do pray for any here who may be at times of difficulty or despair, and maybe it's been something that's been longstanding. God, I pray you would use your word by your spirit to bring hope and encouragement to bring strength to continue on to walk by faith and trust you Lord bring other believers in their lives Lord to be an encouragement and a help and Lord just when we are tempted and faced with those times of difficulty and we're we're tempted to despair bring these words from Psalm 13 to our minds direct our attention towards you and Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that we can trust you. Thank you most especially for your son. It's only because of him that, that we have faith. It's only because of him that we have hope. It's only because of him that we have something to preach to ourselves. And just pray, God, if there are any here who don't know him, that you would, this moment and this hour, bring them to faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.